Hey, welcome to Trail Break Radio. I'm David Page here with Emily Scott talking about the intersection between winter recreation and wildlife conservation. Before we dive in, a reminder, this conversation is brought to you from this year's Grassroots Advocacy Conference, sponsored by Outdoor Alliance, the Mighty Arrow Family Foundation, and REI. We've talked in many of these episodes about the explosive growth of backcountry skiing and riding, of how many more people there are suddenly seem to be in the backcountry. In this episode, we'll talk about what impacts all those people might be having on wildlife and what we might be able to do to minimize those impacts. Hillary Eisen, Winter Wildlands Alliance's policy director and self-proclaimed wildlife nerd, chats wildlife conservation strategies with three wildlife conservation experts, Sarah Dewey, Kurt Hellman, and Mike Crosby. Sarah is a wildlife biologist at Grand Teton National Park and the chair of the Teton Range Bighorn Sheep Working Group. The National Park Service, we have a really uh, strong conservation mission. Um, it is also to provide for the enjoyment um, of, the, of the people, um, but uh, in order for people to enjoy those natural and cultural resources, they have to exist. Mike is a 34-year veteran of the Colorado Division of Wildlife, now Colorado Parks and Wildlife. He currently serves as president of the Open Lands, Rivers, and Trails Committee and helped found the Wintering Wildlife Conservation Initiative in 2021. Boy, I, I don't know when the hovercrafts are coming, but they could really be a problem. Kurt is the senior coordinator of the Wildlife Recreation Coexistence Program for Conservation Northwest. While supporting conservation efforts through grassroots activism, Kurt also works to better the relationship between wildlife and outdoor recreation across Washington state. Heck yeah, I love snagging rad lines and just getting out there and sending it. But our playgrounds are much more than that. They are radically alive ecosystems and there's a fragility to that relationship that we have. Most of us winter recreationists value wildlife and care about the ecosystems where we like to play and explore. But maybe in some places, our growing presence out there is actually stressing winter wildlife and degrading their habitats. Can we responsibly use wildlife habitat as our playgrounds? How can we keep wildlife in mind, keep disturbances and displacements minimal as climate change increases, and ensure that wildlife populations can be resilient in an uncertain future? So listen while you're hacking at those edges with a file, tackling that overdue home improvement project, or just unloading the dishwasher. panel now is a topic is wildlife and winter recreation. You know, this, this is a topic that I get really excited about because uh, before I was a conservation policy nerd, I was a wildlife biology nerd. So um, just kind of combines my, my interests here. And as we heard about in just the panel right before, we touched a bit on like, there's a lot of people out recreating in the winter. We maybe don't know exactly how many, and we have different ways of capturing what they're doing, where they're going, who they are, but the general consensus is there's a lot of us. Um, And just based on, you know, our collective experience, I think we can all also attest to the fact that there are more people recreating in winter now than there were previously. You know, we have more uh, ways of recreating. Our technology has made it easier to get out in the backcountry and to go further, uh, whether you're on foot or on a machine or using some combination of of those two things. Um, And so this has really become a 
a growing conservation concern because winter is also a really tough time for wildlife, particularly for ungulates. So for deer, elk, moose, bighorn sheep, mountain goats, um, you know, those are animals that their whole survival strategy and Sarah, maybe the, bio, the true biologist on this can correct me if I'm wrong here, but their strategy is basically like eat as much as you can in the summer, in the fall, and then starve your way, hopefully not all the way to death until spring and green up and you start the cycle over. And so, um, you know, ungulates survival strategy in winter is like, don't move, <laughs> you know, conserve resources. And, but it's also don't get eaten by predators and we are perceived as predators. Um, sometimes we are predators, sometimes we're not, but that's how we're perceived. And so when wildlife ungulates in particular interact or encounter humans in the wintertime, um, you know, there's, they can be habitu habituated in certain cases, but, um, particularly in the back country, that's a startling thing. They tend, they, they move or they become, you know, more aware, you know, it, one way or another, they end up burning more calories, which, you know, messes with that equation of like, eat as much as you can starve your way, don't die. Um, so this is a big conservation concern. And Winter Wildlands is really fortunate to be working with a number of really interesting and smart people and organizations across the country um, on solutions for how to address this. And today we're going to hear from three of those partners. Um, so I'll just have folks introduce themselves. Sarah, I'll start with you, and then we'll come back this way. Great. Um, I'm Sarah Dewey. I'm a wildlife biologist at Grand Teton National Park in uh, northwest Wyoming. And I am um, primarily the ungulate biologist there in the park. And as Hillary mentioned, those are the, the mammals with hooves. So for us, think bison, elk, moose, bighorn sheep. Um, those are the critters. I've been there in the park for about 20 years, worked on all kinds of uh, issues, and um, also done a little bit of uh, work with black bears and grizzly bears and, and wolves. My name is Mike Crosby. I'm a retired guy that's what I do but I my career was I was a wildlife manager for the state of Colorado in the next county just to the west here called Grand County it's called Middle Park um, there's three parks in the state North Park Middle Park South Park and the San Luis Valley they're all high mountain parks and it's a sagebrush basin basically and uh, in my job I, I managed wildlife and that it was multi-purpose in the sense that we did law enforcement, uh, big game management, sheep transplants, and I focused myself pretty much on habitat work. Um, my name is Kurt Hellman. I work with a nonprofit based in Washington State. Uh, it's called Conservation Northwest. We connect, protect, and restore wildlife and wild lands. Um, I was hired on a couple of years ago with this nonprofit to get mixed up in wildlife and recreation coexistence and how to improve the dynamics between wildlife and recreation use across public lands. And to be perfectly frank, I am not a scientist. Um, I actually come from a recreation background. I used to be a hiking guide. I worked for the Mountaineers, which is a part of Outdoor Alliance. I used to work for a, a trails association in Washington State. Um, but I've always been a conservation nerd for, for, uh, for quite some time. But um, yeah, I help connect wildlife science to recreation management policy, and then also connect that same science to outreach and education materials in the recreation community. Well, thanks, everybody. And as you can see, good diversity of different uh, landscapes and, and geographies here. Um, so, Sarah, I'm going to start with you. Um, as the Grand Teton National Park biologist, you know, 
we all know Grand Teton is a world-renowned winter recreation destination, and people come to the park to do everything from snowshoeing to skiing, some of the most challenging descents in the world. Uh, it's also renowned for its wildlife. It's part of the greater Yellowstone ecosystem, and you, know, you listed off some of the <laughs> creatures that you're working with. Um, as the park's wildlife biologist, what are you focused on in terms of winter recreation and wildlife conflict? A general paradigm in wildlife management is to provide secure winter habitat for uh, primarily the ungulates. And what that means in practice is that um, some areas that are of high winter use by those ungulates might be closed to human entry for a period of time in the winter. And that, and Hillary really did a bang up job like describing what the, what is going on um, for ungulates in the winter. But, you know, um, winter is the, is the most stressful time. It is um, a period of resource scarcity. And so what animals do in seasonally variable environments, so by that I mean like in, in, um, in, Jackson in the the winter, it's snow covered. It's really cold. There's high winds. Uh, if there's any food, it might be covered in snow, so it's not accessible. And so those animals are in energy conservation mode. And um, if we can eliminate um, disturbance to them and or, or an additional stressor, um, that may make the difference between them uh, either not surviving or not being able, you know, these females are pregnant throughout the winter. It may make the difference between them not being able to give birth to a, a viable young. And so this is a paradigm in wildlife management widely applied throughout the West, well, across the, the U.S. probably. Um, and uh, in Grand Teton National Park and also in the adjacent uh, uh, agencies, uh, there's a number of uh, winter closures that have been in place for a number of years, and those are to protect um, primarily bison, elk, and mule deer. Um, and the park has two small closures at high elevation to protect uh, uh, the bighorn sheep that live there. And uh, because of the change in uh, we've seen in visitation and the, the growth in backcountry winter recreation, we're now seeing um, more people and an expanding footprint of people going to places in the Tetons that they didn't used to go before. And so, um, you know, the National Park Service, we have a really uh, strong conservation mission um, it is also to provide for the enjoyment um, of, the, of the people, um, but uh, in order for people to enjoy those natural and cultural resources, they have to exist. Um, and so we have uh, a strong interest in protecting all of our wildlife resources. So I'm gonna shift more specifically to the, the bighorn sheep uh, situation and provide a little bit of context for what um, kind of shaped how we approach this issue. So uh, the bighorn sheep that live in the Tetons are a relic of a much larger historical population. And so if you think about large populations, they're way more robust and resilient. Now we have a pretty small population. And so we have to be uh, pretty cautious in terms of how we monitor them. 
Um, the other thing to know is that the landscape, the Tetons, um, there's multiple management jurisdictions involved. So there's two national forests, a national park, and uh, the state wildlife management agency. So that provides for sort of a complex management um, setting. And bighorn sheep, they don't recognize jurisdictional boundaries in case you were unaware. But, um, and so to, to address that, um, uh, the biologists way before me, more than 30 years ago, um, they formed a working group of all those members as a way to um, cooperatively do research and coordinate management across all those jurisdictions. One other consideration for the sheep is that um, because of the development in Jackson Hole and in Teton Valley, Idaho, they've lost access to what was their low elevation winter range. So now these sheep uh, eke out a living exclusively at high elevations where arguably conditions are a lot more uh, extreme and difficult than, than they were down in the, in the valleys. Um, and so essentially the, the sheep have nowhere else to go. At the same time, um, it's becoming more appealing to um, backcountry winter recreationists. And so we've seen a big increase um, in, in that activities. And so back in the 1990s, the, um, the working group developed a strategic plan. And even back then in the mid 90s, they identified winter recreation as a concern. And so eventually, uh, there was a whole list of concerns, and the working group had been plugging away at those for a long time. Um, in the, in the, the late 2000s, the working group initiated a study, a uh, university-led study, where we deployed GPS radio collars on bighorn sheep and then asked skiers um, to carry GPS units so we could look at what um, the potential impacts might be of that overlap between skiers and um, and bighorn sheep, and uh, essentially, and this is going to be like in a nutshell, super distilled. Happy to talk more about uh, the results, but in a nutshell, what came out of that work was a habitat model, so that we knew what was the highest quality habitat for bighorn sheep in the Tetons, and then also what came out of that work was uh, that. Bighorn sheep avoided areas of uh, high backcountry winter recreation, even when those areas were really high quality habitat. So they just, it's a, in the wildlife profession, we call it indirect habitat loss. The habitat is still there, they just don't use it. Um, also, um, that avoidance behavior in the most extreme cases resulted in a loss of up to 30% of a habitat for an individu some individuals. And um, both bighorn sheep that were in high use and low use recreation areas um, uh, demonstrated that avoidance behavior. And, but those exposed to the highest levels, they uh, showed increased daily movement rates. So equate that to burning more energy. And they had larger home ranges, again, also uh, burning more energy. So how do you? deal with this, you have an iconic species and you have a place like the Tetons where backcountry winter recreation is just entwined with the identity of the place. Um, you know, uh, 
the, 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 the communities of Jackson and Victor Driggs in Idaho, that, that is why so many of the, the residents live there is for the backcountry skiing. And so because the, the, the Tetons and backcountry winter recreation hold such deep value and emotional connection for many, many people, our working group recognized that we need to do something. We needed to uh, try to uh, come up with solutions for how to deal with this conflict. Um, but we also recognized that our community, that community engagement was really gonna be vital to our success and we needed to take a new approach. You know, Traditionally, us federal agencies were all top down. Here's what we're doing, what do you think? Okay, I don't care, you know? Uh, we're doing it anyway. And, um, and we didn't wanna take that approach, given the importance of backcountry winter recreation to our community. We opted to try a bottom-up approach, which was pretty new and different. And if you can imagine four different entities trying to do this uh, together, it, um, you know, it, it, uh, it didn't always go smoothly, but I think it's a, a good um, attempt. And so um, we tried what we called a, a collaborative learning process, and I'll talk more about that later. Great. Thank you, Sarah. And Kurt, jumping over to you. So Sarah um, talked about, you know, some of the work they're doing um, in this sphere around bighorn sheep and winter recreation and teased us for more later. Um, and this is in the Tetons. And is there any overlap with what she's working on in Wyoming and what you work on in the Pacific Northwest? And what's similar, what's different? You know, tell us, tell us a bit about what, what goes on over there. To be succinct, there are tons of parallels to what Sarah is speaking to. And, um, but to note one very stark difference is that Sarah's working on one specific species with it's back against the wall in a lot of ways with a really increasing pressure that is recreation in addition to other pressures that wildlife face, including climate change, including increasing residential and commercial development. Um, but we're, we're seeing a lot of those general themes in Washington state, which, you know, the west side of the Cascades, the Puget Sound is, you know, Seattle is nestled right in there. It's continuously one of the fastest growing cities in the lower 48 or in the US. Um, so we're, we're seeing this, this tension growing and growing with providing abundant, accessible recreation opportunities, but also really uh, being proactive in our wildlife management because we do know the general science that recreation can displace and disturb wildlife. Um, a lot of my work for the past year was writing a literature report on the existing science for 15 Washington-specific species and what does mountain biking mean for elk? What does snowmobiling mean for wolverines? Um, and in short, it's, it's really complex stuff. It's extremely context-dependent, depending on what recreation activity you're talking about, what species you're talking about, what landscape are you talking about? You're talking about the high alpine, or are you talking down in the lowlands? It really, really is truly context-dependent. So with that said, it's we need to invest in more uh, research, more finer specific, or like a finer scale specific uh, management ideas that can work for uh, wildlife species in a, in a specific context and also for recreation in a very specific context. And so given the complexity, um, you know, like there's, there's themes that can help guide us. Um, and, and I think I'll, I'll point out just one in the sense of winter recreation, a lot of uh, the studies that we looked at and reviewed talk about the increased response that wildlife have 
to unpredictable off-trail recreation, particularly during the winter. So there's a, there's a higher onus on the recreation community to be mindful when we're out, uh, to keep wildlife in mind and to keep those disturbances and displacements minimal where we can. And so, you know, that, that sounds pretty cool in the abstract, but when you get down to it, um, it's a lot harder. And so with this literature review, we've kind of extrapolated the data into kind of what does that mean for land management in the lens of recreation going forward. And step one, what we recommend is to map the overlap between critical habitat for species and uh, recreation areas. And I was super stoked at the last panel to hear like that's already <laughs> already uh, commenced in a, in a lot of different ways. Um, and then number two is to measure the recreation intensity, to measure the data, knowing where people are going. And again, like I was super jazzed to hear a lot of those themes in this last panel or two. Um, and then three, like, you know, to, to Sarah's point and what she's doing in, in the bighorn uh, sheep issue is we really got to seriously protect the critical habitat areas for wildlife and the critical times for wildlife. And so that can look like a lot of different things depending, again, on what species and what area you're talking about. But really when it comes down to it, you gotta protect wildlife migration corridors. You really gotta protect denning or mating areas for certain wildlife. And you gotta protect winter range because as we know, especially for ungulates, that's just a really trying time. And we gotta give them the time and space that they need free from disturbance. Um, and then four, where the rubber meets the road that we recommend is adaptive, flexible management. I think someone in the audience here was talking about that in the last panel and super stoked to hear that because we need dy dynamic management that's flexible to the changing needs of our landscape and its diverse resources. And um, we hear this theme really come alive when talking to a lot of First Nations in Washington state. It's a slightly different context than I think in other places of the West is that we have a lot of federally recognized tribes, actually 29 of them across Washington state. And then additionally, there's probably a half dozen more tribes that don't necessarily have treaty rights, but have an important voice on the table when it comes to protecting first foods and cultural resources, some of which include elk, some of which include huckleberry, some of which include mule deer. And so what does recreation mean for the longevity of those resources that again are protected under treaty rights that were signed back in the 1850s. And so there's there's definitely a high need in Washington to to address um, the, this coexistence piece. And so uh, maybe I'll stop there. Well, thanks. Thanks, Kerr. That's a lot to chew on. Um, and then Mike, you know, you're retired Colorado wildlife manager, Colorado you know, I feel like is, is the crux, you know, there's so many people recreating here and there's still, you know, amazing wildlife resources. And, um, you helped to initiate this new project that winter wildlands is working on with the Colorado parks and wildlife, Colorado mountain club, uh, theater Roosevelt conservation partnership, um, called the wintering wildlife conservation initiative. Um, can you tell us a bit about it and what some of the issues and challenges are that are here in Colorado that this initiative is hoping to address? Sure, thanks again for inviting us to this. I think it's a great group and a great conference. Um, so back to Middle Park where I live, um, it's like a great big bowl, if you will. And in the summertime, there's ample summer ranges, uh, calving and fawning grounds. Um, as the snow starts to lay in, which it's a high mountain park, the bottom of the park's about 7,600 feet. So uh, as those snow layers come in, it compresses and uh, and starts, all the deer and elk start migrating and antelope start migrating to lower elevations. 
And so our critical winter ranges are the south-facing, uh, lower elevation slopes, primarily are sagebrush, and and that's where they that's as low as they can go. Now, when if the snow gets bad like last year, we had a severe winter. Uh, those animals end up getting pressed on down further onto the private lands in the bottom. So, back to Hillary's question, when uh, while I was still working, I, I had to deal with road injuries, uh, road damage things, and because at the very bottom of that winter range, there's two things. There's the railroad and the highway. And so it, it behooves the deer and elk to stay above the railroad and not get compressed down lower onto those high mortality scenarios. And so as I retired um, and I talked to a friend of my daughter's that was involved in a film called Denzins of the Steep up in Jackson, um, I, I got to thinking, what can we do? I mean, that's a wonderful educational film. What can we do to minimize some of these impacts in, in our areas in Colorado? And, uh, you know, in my life, I'm a native here who started skiing 60 some, or about 60 years ago on wooden skis with hardwood edges and leather boots. Yeah. The, the, yeah. the, uh, the, uh, Technology has rapidly increased up to into the 90s to where um, now you can go so much further, so much faster with this new technology, the skins and the wider skis that, and, and you've got on top of that, we have, you know, the population has blown four times what it was when I was a kid. So you've got a whole influx of people that really are coming in into an, an environment that don't have any experience there. So I thought we should really be doing some education as far as what impacts in the winter, which are so critical because, and let me go back just a sec to capitalize on what Sarah said, the, you know, deer and elk come into the winter just after breeding season in a stressed state of condition, and then it's starving time from December on, it's starvation, starvation, and same with domestic cattle, you know, they starve all through the winter, even though they're getting fed. And you hope they come out at the end of the spring and you hope they have their progeny, their offspring. Every stress adds against them through that process. So my goal was to try to get some education out there, uh, thanks to Hillary's help and some others, um, to, to educate folks and make a new... Um, paradigm, if you will, where people are accustomed and they think about wildlife, they think about tracks, they think about what happens if they get into a moose and how to get away, uh, what happens if their dog runs into a bunch of deer in the winter, which is very stressful for them. So with that, I guess, I think I answered your question. Well, we'll turn it back to Sarah then. And uh can maybe tell us a bit more about the Bighorn Sheep Collaborative process. Um, you know, it's it's garnered a lot of attention in the backcountry ski community, not just in the Teton region, but nationally because the Tetons are so iconic. Um, and uh, yeah, I think I think it's a notable process, and would love to hear more about it and, and where it's at today as well. Sure. So um, the idea of the collaborative learning process, and this is. Uh, you know, if you think about the federal agencies, and I, I, I understand the frustrations that people have uh, expressed in the 
terms of the time frames and how it just feels glacially slow and um, uh, whatnot. Uh, you know, but the, the, these, uh, the way these federal agencies approach things comes from policy. And this process was totally outside the box. Um, and because it was totally outside the box, there was a lot that us uh, biologists had to do to garner support up our agencies for us to even be able to, to, to take, take a chance on a different way of, of, of trying to do this. So the idea was to identify community-based um, ideas and solutions that balance the winter habitat needs of uh, bighorn sheep and um, backcountry recreational opportunities within the confines of our policies, you know? So it wouldn't be okay for sheep to go extinct in the Tetons for, uh, for the National Park Service, just given that our mission. So um, we had a series of public meetings. The meetings were open to everyone and anyone and were designed around the principles of shared learning um, and transparency and collaborative development of uh, potential solutions that were supported by the uh, community. So we worked with a facilitator um, and that was a really key thing who had ex experience with really um, thorny natural resource issues. And uh, we held five um, workshops. We began in February of 2020 and then of course uh, COVID came. And so um, uh, we were able to get three meetings done in person and then we had to shift to virtual. Um, so the, the workshops were all structured so that they included information sharing from the working group about the science, about bighorn sheep ecology. But then a really key thing, and I think really the most important part of my learning and learning of others on the working group is that we asked key members of the backcountry recreation community to represent their community. And we heard from them about why they are, um, you know, what's important to them in skiing, what areas are important, um, you know, and it was, a, I think it was a, a lot of learning on, on all sides. And then at each meeting, uh, we had facilitated small group discussion, and it was randomized what group you were in so that uh, it wasn't just a, a group of um, say skiers and conservationists were in a, another group. It was uh, structured so that people would have some of those hard discussions um, while they were brainstorming possible solutions. And um, we tried to give people a, a, a time to kind of vent, you know, any change is uh, difficult. And so we asked people to tell us in the first meeting, what are your interests in terms of being here? What do you value? And what are your concerns with this um, process? And then in the following meetings, we got into conceptual solutions and then into more like geographic on the ground solutions with literally drawing on maps. And I agree that it would be way better if there was a way to to do that digitally so that we hadn't had to draw on maps and then digitize those maps, but that's where we were. Um, so after uh, the conclusion of those five meetings, the working group spent probably a year trying to sift through, compile all that information, and then um, we developed a, a recommendation document that was shared with the public 
in another um, virtual meeting in which the heads of all our agencies uh, were there and available to answer questions. And I can't remember specifically, but there might've been more than 200 people. And they weren't um, just from the Tetons. They were from all over the country because by that point, um, the word had gotten out and uh, there was a lot of interest in what, in what we were we were doing. Um, so the recommendations included um, potential actions that uh, range from increasing public education and outreach because awareness, frankly, was um, one of the key things that we learned is that some people didn't even know there were sheep in the Tetons at all. And so, um, and then you have a, com a community where there is a fair amount of turnover. And so you have to be thinking about how do we continually educate um, people about this. Um, other actions included like enhanced monitoring of both bighorn sheep and um, humans to understand how they're both using that habitat, if you will. Also, um, potential habitat treatments, or more likely because most of this is wilderness, is like how can we use natural fire to improve bighorn sheep habitat? Um, and then also new habitat uh, protection zones, and some of those with designated routes through them. And this uh, speaks to something that uh, David mentioned earlier about um, some of those uh, older folks in our community. And we are, we're fortunate that some of those folks participated and told us uh, the, the way in which they had enjoyed the Tetons was doing these crazy traverses, um, you know, on those like old skis like you're uh, describing. And so we tried to capture some of that um, as well in terms of putting designated routes that might have gone through a habitat protection zone, but it would allow people to continue to do those sorts of uh, traverses. And so each agency has taken a different approach in terms of implementing those recommendations. I should uh, mention that Grand Teton actually has the most winter habitat for bighorn sheep in the Teton range, about 79%. And so the park um, has, is pursuing an environmental analysis to evaluate implementing those recommendations and looking at different alternatives um, to how we might do that. Um, and the other agencies, we're more interested in taking a voluntary approach to begin with, and in part for one of the forests anyway, uh, enforcement was a big concern. And, um, and so uh, they wanted to see uh, whether or not, you know, we could get at this by making it voluntary. And so in uh, winters of 2021 and 2022, and again this past winter, um, we did, uh, identify these voluntary habitat protection zones for bighorn sheep and ask the public to stay out of those. And so um, the park is working away on our environmental assessment. It should be ready for public um, review in um, this winter sometime. And um, I just wanna say one outcome of the process that really struck me was that um, it's how uh, this effort turned into a community conversation that um, it, it started with um, the working group, but it 
it, it actually, I think the best conversations were those that were going on in the backcountry winter recreation community itself. There was a lot of blogs and like stories in um, magazines. And it was just a really thoughtful discussion of people were looking at um, the, themselves, maybe some for the first time uh, in terms of, yeah, I guess maybe there could be an impact and, and how do I reconcile that? Because I think at heart, most recreationists are conservationists as well. And um, yeah, so it was, a, I think it was a big learning process all the way around. And the learning is, is ongoing. I remember working with Gary on our, our comments for that draft EA and, you know, Winter Wildlands and Teton Backcountry Alliance put out a big survey to, you know, the backcountry community to try and inform, you know, our input into, you know, the park's documents and you know, we're continuing to, to work on that together. Um, so Kurt, coming back to you, you know, the, the Teton collaborative process has attracted a lot of national attention. Sarah mentioned, you know, they had people tuning in from all over the country. Um, but there's similar, are there similar efforts? I guess I shouldn't say there is uh, happening elsewhere. And what are you finding to be successful for uh, approaches for reducing uh, recreation wildlife conflicts or educating recreationists about wintering wildlife in the region that you work? Yeah, for sure. Um, well, to answer your question directly, yes. <laughs> uh, certainly lots of similar issues that might not get as much media attention, thankfully. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, what Sarah outlined, it's like, man, those are like some of the recipes or key ingredients for success. And in in some of these like really messy and complex and frankly, just tough issues of like, how do we balance recreation with wildlife needs? Um, but to your point, Sarah, of transparency, I, I'm finding that a lot of our state land managers, particularly the Department of Fish and Wildlife, is kind of changing its tune a bit to be more transparent and honest with, you know, we are making um, decisions about recreation management with limited data. There's certainly a lot of stuff that we don't know, but here's what we think is best based on what we know. And to keep that, like, open line of communication open with the cross-country skiers, with the snowmobilers, with the backcountry skiers, like that is just so, so, so key. Also just, it's really, really hard. Um, and so a lot of my job is to actually facilitate workshops, facilitate stakeholder meetings where we kind of get into the nitty gritty. Sometimes it's certainly pretty messy and sometimes it's great. Um, but that transparency piece on the land manager side is super, super critical. And with that, you know, I think on the recreation side, because to be honest, a lot of folks that I gather from the recreation side, I ski with them. I rock climb with them. I like, yeah, so like they're my buds. So I get it. Um, there has to be an openness um, when recreationists come to the table to, to think a little bit more holistically about what our recreation means for the landscape and understand that public lands why, yes, like they can be described as our playgrounds for the weekends, particularly me as a weekend warrior. Like, heck yeah, I love snagging rad lines and just getting out there and sending it. But our playgrounds are much more than that. They are radically alive ecosystems. And there's a fragility to that relationship that we have as we kind of walk through mule deer winter habitat or walk past a denning site for a black bear that, you know, I might not cause a bear to abandon its den, but maybe 15, 50, 1,000 people behind me could like slowly accumulate that disturbance that causes a significant impact to a black bear, to a mule deer. Um, and so 
that openness piece is, is super, super critical from a recreationist perspective. And then also, I think, just in the community sense, there has to be a sense of togetherness. Um, I've seen a lot of workshops kind of digress into finger pointing of like, oh, my recreation isn't bad. It's the snowmobilers or like, well, hey, like the snowmobiling isn't that bad. We got to be worried about those hunters. Like, and it's just like, it just quickly devolves into a stalemate where like we all need to recognize we do have an impact to the landscape. As soon as we step out of our cars into the trailheads, it's like, yeah, let's let's like note that we accumulatively together have an impact and what are we gonna do about it together? Um, I think that's that's pretty key. And so maybe I'll share an example that something I've been working on all this week is in the Methow Valley, which is a super, super popular cross-country skiing destination. They actually pump out US Olympians like every five years. It's pretty cool, great place. Also fantastic backcountry skiing. Um, location and the community is, is pretty rural, pretty tight knit. And uh, the Department of Fish and Wildlife, which owns quite a bit of accessible public lands, is introducing a proposal to better protect wintering mule deer, especially in their critical winter range habitat from recreation disturbances. And um, this proposal has been met with a lot of pushback, a lot of hesitation. Um, and, and so we've been conducting workshops and presentations that can increase the transparency where land managers can talk directly to that cross-country skier, talk directly to that hunter, talk directly to that snowmobiler and say, like, this is our rationale. We are limited in what knowledge we have. And we perhaps don't have the time and resources to do a 20-year study about the dynamics between mule deer and cross-country skiing. Like, they might have in other parts of the country, like in the national park system, perhaps. Um, but yeah, we got to make do with what we have. And um, we all are kind of in it together. So it's like certainly tough, uh, hard going. But in the Met How, you know, like there's there's been some really good progress where, you know, it's not only of, you know, getting pinpointed management, it's pinpointing that outreach and engagement, like, you know, instilling this LNT ethic that's a bit deeper than what we might be familiar and comfortable with, like really asking questions of what does it mean to actually follow that, I think it's the sixth principle of respecting wildlife. What does that mean to me when I'm cross-country skiing or backcountry skiing? And so, you know, kind of instilling that deeper thought on the outreach side of things is, is pretty key, especially in the Metau, um, where I'm working currently. I'm glad you brought up that sixth LNT principle because I was trying to remember which one it was because that's my segue into Mike is, um, you know, one thing when we were talking about, you know, how do we educate winter recreationists about wildlife? And it was like, you you see, leave no traces, respect wildlife, recreate responsibly has something about respect wildlife, ski kind, I think we have a, you know, respect wildlife, but there isn't any... there to date has not been much detail on what exactly that means. And I think that's, you know, what one of the things we're trying to accomplish with the Wintering Wildlife Conservation Initiative. Um, so Mike, can you tell us, tell us a bit about that? Well, thanks. And uh, about a couple, two and a half years ago, uh, I got a hold of Hillary and uh, a couple other folks that were interested in this. And we started brainstorming for about a year on where do we go with this issue? We don't want to have closures per se, because like in our area, I mean, closures could be good in certain spots, but the snow level changes and moves around the valley from year to year, and we don't always have these severe winter range issues. 
So we started getting together and brainstorming and, and coming up with some, uh, a, an idea for a program or an I or a effort initiative. And, uh, we decided to, uh, the first thing we did is last winter as winter approached, we got together these posters, which you can see on the board. And, uh, just as a way to, to do some blanket education because there really wasn't anything being addressed through the industry or parks or wildlife other than, you know, it's against the law to harass wildlife. It's against the law to have your dog chasing deer and the dog can be shot. Instead of these strict rules, we wanted to come up with kind of an educational format to, to go forward with get, getting everybody to understand that everyone makes an impact every day, everywhere we go. And so we want to be able to understand and minimize some of those impacts with our neighboring wildlife species around us. So, um, but I personally, I distributed these posters all around Grand County in the state of Colorado via email. And then, and, and I'm sure Hillary and Liz and Shannon did too. And then I started realizing that, well, this is, this is a bigger deal than just Colorado, than Middle Park or where I'm at or, or the Tetons. It's, it's almost worldwide. I um, sent some up to Alaska. A friend of mine was up there and she said they have an issue with the caribou and people skiing into them and they're just really not aware that they're causing a problem. I don't think people, recreationists, want to cause a problem. I think everybody wants to do the right thing. And so if they can just know what they're doing and that realize that everybody does have an impact, I think it can really minimize some of these impacts. So we were able to put uh, this spring in a grant application to Colorado Parks and Wildlife. It's a GOCO fund called the Governor's Selection. What was the name of that? Something, it's like the outside the box yeah, program. I don't know what it's called. <laughs> anyway, we were able to get a grant. So we finally have a little bit of money to go forward with some marketing with this information and then a short animated video that will get out there and hopefully uh, get some real good coverage. And we wanted to use Colorado as a template first and hone our efforts through that. And then we can go bigger scale because as, as I'm understanding, this is a, not just an issue in Colorado or in the West, but it, it's an issue with moose in the East and, Ibex in Europe, and um, I, it's amazing when you start to dig in and see what's going on. There's kind of a, uh, a big collaborative mental process happening across the world because a lot of people are starting to think about this. So if we can all get together on it and uh, accomplish some good tools and a toolbox that we can minimize those impacts, I think we can have the wildlife resource for seven generations or more and uh and and we'll be able to have our good skiing too we encourage people to go to the middle land the middle country between the winter range and the alpine where there can be goats in our area and sheep in a few spots but try to try to follow that snow load to where you don't run into tracks and where you don't run into herds of wildlife that you could displace because once something's displaced like in the tetons it can be fatal. And uh, some of these populations are rather limited in size. So I think I 
got to where I was going. Yeah, thank you. And <laughs> there's a, a whole pile of, of this poster sitting on the table here for people to take. And um, as Mike mentioned, you know, this winter we're, we have some funds to, this is kind of draft one, and, and we're going to be working with a professional designer and with Eric's firm um, <laughs> to, uh, to put together a, a more polished uh, campaign with a website and social media and all that, as well as um, some animated videos. And But please do share share this in your communities as well. And um, with that, uh, we've got about 10 minutes for questions before the, the one o'clock lunch break. So. Um, one thing I notice on this, um, do we, are we comfortable talking about how photography plays into the process of wildlife harassment? That's a really good point. That's a really good point. Um, it, it does play into this process. And I mean, even Parks and Wildlife encourage people to have a photo contest but when photo, photo journalism or photo photographers go out into the wilds, sometimes they get so focused on the species they're trying to get or the shot that they displace them. And that can have a very negative effect. And we haven't talked about that very much. I mean, this, I think, is part of that picture. Um, we didn't want to call out snowmobilers or snowshoers or photographers per se, we wanted to make it fairly general so that everybody kind of, it rings a bell with everybody. But that's a, that's a good one. And I'll just say from a science perspective, wildlife photography is that quintessential off-trail, unpredictable type of recreation for wildlife. So it has, in theory, a pretty intense impact compared to more predictable forms of recreation. And uh, that's something we're trying to dial our messaging in on in Washington because our wildlife photographing community is often shoulder to shoulder with us on a lot of conservation issues. So it's kind of sucky to point fingers at your best buddy. Um, but again, it, kind of honing in on that togetherness piece is, is really, really critical when talking to photographers, um, especially when they're trying to take pictures of pretty elusive and sensitive animals. Thanks, you guys. Really appreciate it all the info. I'm just a little curious. Um, you know, I know moose have long legs, but why do moose typically not migrate down out of deeper snow zones in the winter? Or would they if there was not pressure down below? That's a good question. I, when I was in college in Montana, a guy termed moose as snowphagic in that they just love deep snow and they'll up there, they'll call have these channels, these troughs that they get into, and they stay in those areas because their forage base, which is alder and willow and cottonwood and aspen, they you know they can just get right to it and they can paw it down. We do have moose that go into the sagebrush. I've seen them eat in sagebrush, um, but I think they're just more of a Pleistocene remnant, and the snow is deeper in the Pleistocene. But they they like this deep snow they don't they they'll it can be a problem for skiers or snowmobilers because they are um territorial in the sense that they defend their own space so that's one critter we in wildlife always say run you know get away from that zone of influence and and they go back to eating An another question i had is you know i've heard that that human powered users actually have more of an impact on wildlife than motorized simply because the motorized they can the critters can hear them coming 
uh, whereas human power, you know, often quote unquote sneak up to them, sneak up on them without knowing. Any any feedback there? Well, go ahead. Um, I'll say generally it's extremely context dependent, but yes, there are certainly some small studies that show that animals elicit a higher flea response to slow moving human powered recreation because they move more closely like a predator as opposed to a snowmobile, as opposed to a car, as opposed to an ATV, which is gone in a second. Um, and so a lot of ways to measure that is like the stress levels that they find in fecal matter or like other ways of like measuring the heart rate of particular animals. And maybe Sarah can speak more on, on that specific study, but there are ways to measure higher stresses according to different recreation activities. So for some ungulates, yes, there might be a higher stress response or a higher flea response to slow moving human powered recreation. But again, very context dependent. Yeah, I would just add that it's it can be the unpredictability too of people. I mean, maybe you're talking about humans on a trail, but and that could be predictable, but it's when people are just going cross country and have basically a surprise encounter with an animal that that can be stressful. And the one of the research projects was done over just south of Kremlin where a guy had heart, heart monitoring uh, stuff on deer and he measured the snowmobile heart rate, deer heart rate response versus one with a skier and then skier and dog. And the one with the skier and the dog was the highest and highest sustained rate of stress uh, because it's very hunter oriented, you know. And of course it's higher if they're coming towards them versus going off to the side. Um, so there is some evidence to that. But you're right on. I mean, a snowmobile, unless they're playing, I mean, they're through an area of wind range generally, um, speaking where they can get through there and on up to the deeper stuff. Uh, aside from just increased usage, um, y'all talked a lot about how you know changes in technology have increased and expanded access, more people, more pattern, you know, moving in similar patterns. Is there any thought leadership that's being done or looking at like what's coming next? in terms of technological advancements and kind of trying to get ahead of some of that in terms of education or anticipating the impact that that could have? Boy, I, I don't know when the hovercrafts are coming, but they could really be a problem. Uh, the latest thing that's come onto the scene was these is snow bikes, and they're getting up into some really tough spots that snowmobiles couldn't get to, that skiers can barely get to. So I don't know. I don't know what's coming next, but uh, I'm sure there will be something. Humans are really creative, but yeah. I, we, I haven't thought about that far. I mean, that's that ties into maybe all the panels that we had this whole conference of like, how do you plan for sustainable recreation when you don't when you don't know what uses you're going to be dealing? I think Anne, you were talking about electric snowboarding upon Vail Pass, so maybe this afternoon we'll hear about that. But um, yeah, I mean, there's been research on, you know, how drones stress out wildlife um, and, yeah, who knows what we're going to have. And so I think that's where, the, you know, the education comes in. If no matter what you're doing, if you're aware of, you know, potential impacts on wildlife and then you have, you know, land management planning, travel management planning, recreation planning that tries to be proactive in protecting habitat, getting to what Sarah started with about, you know, the paradigm of, like, if you just have places they can go where they're not disturbed – then doesn't matter what we're doing outside of those places. But Sarah, I'll let you wrap it up here. 
Okay. Um, so uh, I don't have I don't know what's coming, and because we don't know what's coming, you know, one of our goals is to ensure that wildlife populations can be resilient in an uncertain future, and it, that means uncertainty in terms of um, how people are going to be using the landscape and what um, what uh, you know. Uh, how they'll be going on the landscape. And it also means in terms of the environment itself because it, it is changing. And so um, given that we don't know, we are kind of operating under the precautionary principle where um, we, we need to provide them a place to, to, to be for the winter. Well, thank you guys so much. That was amazing, super interesting. Thanks for tuning in to Trailbreak Radio, the Winter Wildlands Alliance podcast. I'm David Page, the Executive Director of Winter Wildlands Alliance. If you enjoyed today's episode, we'd sure appreciate it if you could take a moment to rate, review, and subscribe to Trailbreak Radio on your favorite podcast platform. Also, check out our website, winterwildlands.org, to become a member or donate to further our work to protect wintering wildlife and to support sustainable winter recreation. On this episode, Emily Scott directed and co-hosted, Tess Goodwin produced and edited. Thank you again to our sponsors, Outdoor Alliance, the Mighty Arrow Family Foundation, and REI. Trailbreak Radio's theme songs by Rattlesnake Preachers, featuring Carrie McClay, Winter Wildlands Alliance's National Snow School Director. Check them out on Instagram at Rattlesnake Preachers. Tune in next Friday, where we unravel strategies to reduce our collective impact on the lands where we recreate. How can we work in partnership with land managers and other users to educate winter recreationists to be stewards of winter?